You are now listening to The Real Enneagram, a podcast by the Institute for Conscious Being. To learn more about the Institute and its offerings, visit theicb.info. That's T-H-E-I-C-B dot I-N-F-O. And now, here are your hosts, Dr. Joe Howell and Nanette Moodyum. Well, welcome back to week 11 of our podcast series, looking at Becoming Conscious, the Enneagram's Forgotten Passageway. We're so glad to be here with you today, Joe and I. Joe, say hello. Hi. Hi, I'm <laughs> Nanette. And we're so glad to our listening audience for, for being here with us this week. We're going to be looking at Chapter 15, The Return to Essence, which is really at the heart of what we teach, because we believe this is the purpose of the real Enneagram, is to get you back to essence. How would you define essence, Joe? Well, I think it's really another name for our soul, but it has a different connotation to it than soul, meaning that if you boil us down to who we really are, that's our essence, the mm. essence of who our real identity is. There are a lot of perfumes, and some of them are named essence of, essence of magnolia, essence of jasmine, etc., because they've captured that essential core aroma of those things, that if you just smelled that, then you could picture the flower. You don't need the flower, but you can picture it. You can imagine what it's like being around those flowers. And uh, yet the flower isn't there. Only the essence of that flower is there, mm -hmm. the aroma. Mm -hmm. And we, too, as beings, as spiritual beings, each have a particular aroma, if you will, a type of um, smell that only we emit mm -hmm. as part of the great essence. Mm -hmm. And it comes as being part of the great essence. Other words for that are being a child of God. Okay. Uh, we are part of or break off of the great essence. And we purpose or express in our essence one certain particular aspect of God in only the ways that we can be the ones to do that. Mm -hmm. Our essence is very, very unique. That was the word that came to my mind as well, was unique. And interesting that you also said this word essential. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, they probably come from the same root and it is essential to who we are. Mm -hmm. And it's essential to our healing and to the spiritual work that we do to rediscover that essence that's on the inside of each one of us uniquely. Absolutely. So you talk about a deep concept in this chapter called alchemy. Mm -hmm. And so can you define alchemy and what that means mm -hmm. to you? I know it has a scientific definition, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and, but we also are using it as a spiritual analogy as well. Sure. Well, alchemy is, in the spiritual term that I use it, spiritual alchemy, is what happens when the essence and the ego really fuse. 
an amalgamation is with metals, for example, would be like using pig iron and lead to make a stronger metal. Okay. Those two metals, if you will, are melted and form an amalgam, which is a mixture of both of those two metals, which together has a different property than each of the metals have separately. So an amalgamation is a new creation. Okay. In Christianity, Paul asserts this when he says, we become new creatures in Christ, that the old creature is gone away and the new creature has been created. That's because our essence has combined with the truths of the universe and of our soul. And we can never live life as we used to Mm -hmm. because we are completely different. We don't see the same way. We don't look at other people the same way. We don't have the reactions we used to have because we're a new creature. In other words, we are amalgamated. We are not run by a sovereign ego. We are run by an ego that has fused with and has become in service to our soul. Mm -hmm. So they work together. They're amalgamated. Mm -hmm. How does this happen? Mm -hmm. That's where alchemy comes into it. The word alchemy really came into being during the Middle Ages when the magicians and people like Merlin, remember? Yeah, yeah. Were trying to uh, change base metals into gold. Right, right. And there were various things that they ostensibly tried to do to, to make that happen. And alchemy became its own genre, so mm-hmm. to speak, because lots of different things and potions were concocted, as it were, through the mixture of all kinds of metals and ingredients and liquids and solids. And that became a thing, Uh which was really the forerunner of today's chemistry. Okay. And and this was all in a pursuit of making superior or more valuable mm -hmm. properties. Right. 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 And so Carl Jung very aptly adopted the word alchemy because he knew that that was the spiritual process of individuating into the being who we were meant to be. Of course, psychologically, we begin, you know, embedded in our parents and embedded in an unconscious world and and then embedded in our ego. And then that's the sort of first half of life. And The second half of life is about unembedding ourselves, Mm -hmm. finding our unique self, and individuating into the exquisite type of oak tree that our uh, acorn began as. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so alchemy, for him, is that process whereby we undergo transformations that lead to our individuation, our spiritual, real spiritual identities or 
according to the Rid One school that I'm a student of, lead back to our true nature. So alchemy is a process. It's done like in a chemistry lab, for example, a crucible. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. Because the crucible is Mm -hmm. the idea that it brings to mind is heat and suffering and difficulty. And, you know, alchemy sounds all great until it's you in the spiritual transformation process in the heat and the suffering. So, yeah, do talk about that crucible and what that means. Well, sure. Life itself is a crucible. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, we all experience the heat of life. The heat of life causes us to either die or transform. We can shrivel, we can become ash and blow away out of that crucible, or we can use that heat to embody different properties that heat the heat actually potentiates in what we have in the crucible. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a family can be a crucible. That family can work together to nurture and teach and support each of its family members so that everybody in there is individuating. They're not enmeshed with each other and become more and more uh, ambiguous as human beings, but they become affirmed as the unique individual they are in beautiful relationships with the other family members. So that crucible is wonderful, but it has heat. Mm -hmm. All families, all systems have things that create discomfort. And those things, like heat, cause us to accommodate and transform in order to be able to adapt to that heat. There's heat in my family. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'll, I'll, I'll just use my own family when I was a little boy. The heat of my family was, um, there was a one time I was very, very depressed at about age nine because there was a, a bully in our neighborhood. His name was Al. <laughs> Shout out to Al yeah, if he's out Al. listening today. <laughs> and uh, Al wanted to beat me up. Oh. And Al was 12. I oh. was nine. Oh. So and angry. there I am. That's heat. Mm. That's heat. Yes. And my father knew something was wrong with me. Okay. And he kept asking. And I didn't want to tell. I guess you feel like you didn't want to disappoint your father by being scared or whatever. Okay. So the heat kept turning up in that because Al kept coming around and even into my own backyard invading. Mm -hmm. And the more he invaded, the more depressed and scared and withdrawn I was. And the more my father knew Mm -hmm. something was wrong with his son. Mm -hmm. And so my dad came to me one day and he said, somebody's after you, aren't they? How did he know? What were the signs that you were Maybe he had been bullied. I don't know. Uh You know, that's a male thing. Females, too, in different ways. But the physical deal uh, seems to be more in the male psyche. And he said that to me. And I I was immediately relieved Mm -hmm. because I didn't have the secret anymore. 
and I didn't have to have the fear alone anymore, although I was embarrassed. Okay. And then he said, my, my, my dad was, um, sort of a rough and gruff person. He said, uh, you tell me who they are and I'll go stomp his father. <laughs> and that gave me horrors because I, I said, no, 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 please don't. But I told him the name of the guy and I said, please don't do that. I'll never be able to walk in the neighborhood again. <laughs> but there was alchemy going on there because part of the element in my crucible helped me deal with the heat. And my father taught me things about dealing with bullies that I've always remembered and remembered to this day. Mm -hmm. Even in terms of how to walk, my father taught me how to walk with confidence. Those little things, you know, he was on my side. He sensed what was going on. He said he would be my advocate. He taught me how to walk. And he taught me other things about how to deal with bullies. That is an alchemical reaction happened with me. I changed. The heat was the bully, but the alchemical, the heat caused two things to amalgamate in that crucible, a father and son's pain and wisdom. And hence the transformation. Yes. Uh-huh. And it's continued many times over your life, right? Over yeah. and over. Yeah. Yeah. How does that relate to the Enneagram? Well, I think that it is a, that story. Are you mean that story? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, how does alchemy bring that back, that transformation and what you teach about the Enneagram? How does that relate? It relates in the fact that the ego has got to lose a lot of its pride if it sincerely wants to stop its suffering. So you see, there I was in a nine-year-old ego, a budding ego by nine. Sure. You know, and it didn't want to admit that it was scared because boys aren't scared mm -hmm. and only sissies are scared. And to be called a sissy was just the worst thing mm -hmm. in 1959 in mm -hmm. Mobile, Alabama. And I would suspect it would be a, that way in Kansas and in California in 1959. Sure. Probably is today. I don't know. But not wanting to be perceived as a sissy mm -hmm. by one's father was a bit of ego. Uh, so that ego had to die in order to get the medicine it needed. Mm -hmm. And the medicine came from another person's soul, which ministered to my soul. So my ego transformed into being a servant of my soul so that my soul could address my father and say, yes, mm -hmm. I am scared to death. Mm -hmm. I don't know what's going on. Okay. Mm -hmm. But my ego also came to my defense and said to my father, please don't do anything to Al's father, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's grays, not blacks and whites. Okay. You talk in this chapter about sacred containers, because in a crucible, you're in a container, mm -hmm. correct? And that 
the containers can take on many forms. Mm -hmm. You mention a lot of containers that Mm -hmm. I would call spiritual in nature. You mentioned the sacraments, Mm -hmm. meditation, dream discernment, pilgrimage, prayer, music. What do these containers mean as part of our experience of transformation in a crucible? You know, people say, well, if my ego is going to amalgamate with my soul, if it's going to be in dialogue with it, if it's going to divest itself from its pride Mm -hmm. and be a servant of the ego, how can that ego be malleable enough to do the changing it needs to because the ego really has the thought it knows more than anybody about anything. The containers of spiritual practice are what make the ego malleable. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I can say to you, Nanette, that I want my ego to calm down and not be so prideful. Uh-huh. And I, I can even tell you that I'm working on it. Ha ha ha. You know. But where is the workshop where that is? Where is the workshop that it happens that the ego decides to be malleable? Where is the workshop where the ego is tamed? Where is the workshop where the ego learns to listen to other wisdom than its own wisdom. And those workshops are containers wherein sacred space is made because it's in the sacred space that we become safe, we become vulnerable, and we become malleable, and we are most open to the divine. We call these things containers because they have walls, if you will, floors, even ceilings. That connotes the fact that they are sealed off from a lot of the distractions of the world. To use a Hebrew analogy, it would be in the temple, the Holy of Holies. That's where Yahweh met the priests. Right. Okay. Okay. And there was something different in that atmosphere. There were lots of veils that you had to go through, Mm -hmm. curtains, Mm -hmm. in order to get to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, remember? Mm -hmm. Where the presence of God was. Yeah. All of these containers that the spiritual containers I've mentioned are like holy, holy, holies of holies. In that their sacred space, many curtains surround it. It's mm-hmm. cordoned off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of safety. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of purpose right there. And there's the sense that the presence of God is there. So, because this really is supernatural work. It is. I mean, right. It is our belief that we need the divine presence to help in this space, right? Yes. That's what maybe also helps the ego to be malleable, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. A supernatural work. Yes. And when you say supernatural, I know what you mean. You don't uh-huh. mean magic. No. Yeah. Uh, or hocus pocus. Right, right. Of course. Uh, you mean things that are super mm-hmm. and are natural mm-hmm. and divine. Yeah. It's a power with outside of ourselves that we invite in 
that helps us know that that same power is in us because we are part of that great essence. Yes. We self-remember that we are mm-hmm. part of that power. Mm-hmm. And so when we walk a labyrinth, for example, which is one of the containers that I list in this chapter, if you've ever walked a labyrinth, you realize that when you actually get to the center of that circle, you've gone through many curtains. They haven't been curtains like material curtains. They've been twists and turns. They have been curves. They have been have your body face in a different direction, northeast, southwest, and all those in between. And by the time those gyrations and curves, Mm -hmm. turns, Mm -hmm. have been made, and the thoughts that you have concomitantly, by the time we reach the circle, we have a different perception from the person who began that circle, who began that labyrinth. And it's so individual with every human being. And the labyrinth, by the way, is a pilgrimage, mm-hmm. a concentrated pilgrimage. Okay. Other pilgrimages that are real journeys also bring us to a center which contains the person who didn't begin that pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, and it's interesting to think about connected with pilgrimage or the labyrinth. That brings us to the center. And if we could use that as an analogy also for self-remembering, can you? Because in our own spiritual life, as we journey and discover our own, the labyrinth that's within, and we find that who we are is who we've always been. And that is, that is part of the amalgamation. It's yes, we learned so much in our ego. But at the end of the day, there's something deeper within us. Mm-hmm. You must have made this connection because in this chapter, you also talk about children and their stories and their stories of essence, mm-hmm. which when we do this work at conferences, we have guided meditation that brings us very often. You start with this idea of our backyard as children and how we remember ourselves and can you talk about some of your work with children and why that work helped you in this realization? Mm-hmm. You have some beautiful interviews in here, and I know you've had hundreds, if not thousands, of experiences mm-hmm. with kids mm-hmm. and how this relates to your work. I've spent a lot of time around tables with games and toys and even on my office floor with kids with a multitude of behavior problems and traumas, family difficulties. And every time I'm with a child, I am understanding that some of their alchemy is going on in their pain, sometimes too soon in life. I remember a little boy I worked with at Boston Children's Hospital when I was um, a fellow there on staff. His name was, I remember, Jay. He was only 10. He was a cystic fibrosis child. And he had, in the 1970s, the prognosis for cystic fibrosis was not good, possibly would not live till the mid-20s, 30s, hopefully. That's 
happily changed now. But I was assigned uh, this little boy to kind of help through the uh, rigors of being a child who had such a diagnosis. And that child ended up being my therapist. He was so wise, so attuned to his own mind and body. He had accelerated his own spiritual growth because he was aware that his life was not going to be as long as other people. So the spiritual maturity that came out of that little boy was unbelievable, which really shows to me that uh, the heat in his crucible was really, really intense. intense. Uh Uh And instead of buckling under it, he became a new creature, so much so that his wisdom just really astonished me. I'm still astonished by Jay. Mm, that's beautiful. Can you recall anything that he said specifically? What What is it that still sticks with you outside of maybe the experience of his essence? He knew everybody in the hospital. Okay. And uh, everybody loved him, uh-huh. uh, even the security guards. Uh-huh. And, and he asked if he could take me on a tour of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And he took me on a tour called Everybody by Their First Name. Mm-hmm. He was in a little wheelchair, but he wheeled himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I walked beside him. He was introducing me to other people. And he was a person who had value in his own right. And every introduction he made to me. Something was going on that was greater than just that. Mm -hmm. It was a now that was flowering. I saw so much happiness and beauty and maturity. Mm -hmm. He was treated almost, uh, you know, like a peer by all of these adults because he may have been inspiring them just as much as he inspired me. Mm -hmm. Well, we are inspired today, I think, to return to essence. It is where joy and life and maybe introduction to even more other individuals of like-mindedness could come from. And so thank you for that story and thank you for sharing with us today, Joe. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you, Nanette. Thank you for listening to The Real Enneagram, a podcast by the Institute for Conscious Being. To learn more about the Institute and its offerings, visit theicb.info. That's T-H-E-I-C-B dot I-N-F-O. The music for today's podcast was composed and performed by ICB faculty member Drexel Rayford. Thanks for listening today. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this with your friends and family.